Everybody doing okay? Yeah? All right. Now I realized just now that using my iPad to try and offer the word may be challenging today. Sometimes it overheats and then it cranks out and then I don't know what I'm supposed to talk about. That's what happens when you buy your sermons from rickwarren.com forward slash sermons. <laughs> just kidding. It's johnpiper.com forward slash sermons. All right, <laughs> some of you are like, yeah, no. All right, so Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 through 40. Let's read that. If you have a version app, this is a good, uh, maybe get something good to follow through with here. All right, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had left the Sadducees speechless, they met together. Sometimes Jesus leaves us speechless. One of them, a legal expert, which is an attorney, right, tested Jesus. Teacher, what is the greatest command in the law? He replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the laws and the prophets depend. Everybody say depend. Depend on these two commandments. All right, this is where Matthew stops. This section in Matthew's gospel is a part of a section that scholars call the temple debates. Everybody say temple debates. In other words, it's part of a longer section that's filled with conflict. Matthew lets the tension stop here, and he moves on. But Luke, Luke in his gospel doesn't. Luke gives us his version of the rest of the story. Now, whether Luke adapts it, or whether he's literally giving us the rest of the conversation, we're not sure, but he gives us the rest of the story. So go to Luke chapter 10. Now, before we get into that, Luke carries on this story by sharing a parable that Jesus teaches to illustrate his point. And as with all parables, this one is layered and rich in meaning. Okay, And, and, and it, it's commonly, we call it commonly, the parable of the good Samaritan. Now, before we read the parable, we need to do a little bit of homework. Be helpful to understand a few things. There were centuries of suspicion and conflict between Jews and Samaritans. When Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of Luke's version of the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus enters into an age-old conflict. This long religious and political history of conflict is rooted in ethnicity and descendancy. Here's what I mean by that. Samaritans were thought to be descendants of Assyria and other conquerors who colonized the land and were considered by the Jews doubtful descendants of the faith. They were ethnically inferior, religiously inferior, heretics at worst. That's the story. The early Jewish writings and rabbinical literature document this very well. All right. So now let's go on to Luke's gospel to Luke's version of the story Luke 10 verse 29 but the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right because who likes to be wrong so he said to Jesus well who is my neighbor Jesus replied a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho he encountered thieves who stripped him naked beat him and left him near death now it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. And when he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, the Levite, who's kind of like a worship leader, 
came by that spot, saw the injured man and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan, he was on a journey. He came to the mayor where the man was, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took two full days of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of them, take care of him. And when I return, I'll pay you back for any additional costs. So Jesus then says, what do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? Well, then the attorney said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. Jesus then said, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Now, this whole story is soaked in conflict. Everybody say the word conflict. Not our favorite word, right? But this whole story is soaked in conflict. It talks about those who would consider themselves as God's people, the religiously devout, the superior ones. These were the ones who walked past this beaten man who was robbed. The ones, the hearers of Jesus' parable, would expect to do something, did nothing. But the Samaritan, the the inferior one, the the one Jesus' heroes would expect to do nothing, did something. Now, there are many ways to talk about this encounter in the parable Jesus tells, but today I'd like to talk about this parable within its larger context of the temple debates. I'd like to talk about how this, count, how this encounter must move beyond merely being an example of compassionate kindness and neighborliness. I want to talk about how this parable exposes how religious indifference and passivity works and what God does about it. See, if the religious insiders expected to do God's work will not, God will use religious outsiders and unexpected people to do it. To place it in our current moment, if the church will not show compassion, extend hospitality, and work for justice, God will find others who will. No, no, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm completely with Martin Luther, the 15th century reformer, who said, God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. I think that's true. God's redemptive and restorative purposes are not wholly dependent upon the church's commitment to do them. But it is what God wants of us. And, and catch this, empowers us. Say, I am empowered. Say it. I am empowered. Because you are. And like this parable shows us, the church will not. God will find others who will. And we see this play out in history, right? There have been many times when the church hasn't stepped up and God uses the unexpected people and sometimes even Babylon governments to step in. God's plan to redeem and restore all things will not be defeated by anyone, including God's unwilling people. I take great peace in that, unless I'm one of the unwilling people. And we, and we see this in the story of the Hebrew Scriptures, don't we? Like, we see it now. God will accomplish his purposes. And what we know, because God came to us in the person of Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, is that God wants to transform, not preserve. God wants to transform, not preserve. 
God wants to transform the entire cosmos from creation to society to every person. This, beloved, is God's will. And although our free will plays some sort of mysterious role in all of this, God will not coerce his will into being. Instead, God will work through anyone willing to do what is true, good, and beautiful, just like the Samaritan. Yet, it's interesting, because when God works through the outsiders, including those we consider godless, God's people often complain about it. Like in my work with 3E, I hear it all the time. People say, taking care of the vulnerable and the poor is not the job of the government, it's the job of the church. To which I say, yes, yes, but the church didn't do her job, and so God had to find someone else who would. Now what I'm thinking in my head, to be honest with you, is since you believe that it is the church's job to take care of the poor and the vulnerable, I can't wait to learn how you're going to get involved and what kind of checks you're going to write. Otherwise, that belief inevitably lacks substance. See, this encounter and its parable illustrates that if God's people will not show compassion, extend hospitality, and work for justice, God will find others who will. And what else we learn in this story and within its larger context is that God also always has a faithful remnant of people who are willing and ready to participate in what God's up to in the world. So what I want to do is offer two takeaways. Takeaway number one. Beloved, let's not allow our religion to get in the way of offering compassion, extending hospitality, and doing the work of justice. James tells us in James 1.27 that true religion is faithfulness to the way of God's kingdom and to look after the vulnerable. And sometimes we are so concerned with being right that we do nothing at all kind of like paralysis by religious analysis and sometimes the best way to be right is to be compassionate let's choose to always always err on the side of love because that's what jesus teaches us and that's what god does for us so when i offer prayer not done it's not that short i want to offer a prayer that God will reveal to each one of us when we leave this place where we are so bent on being right that we do nothing at all to love our neighbors well, maybe even to love ourselves well. Let's pray. Rather, God, by your spirit, by your Holy Spirit at work within us and between us, reveal to us each one in our heart and mind, either now, later, whenever you desire, where we are suffering compassion paralysis by religious analysis. Teach us and show us in your grace and mercy and remind us that we are so loved by you and empowered by you to participate in what you're doing in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Takeaway number two. And this comes from the encounter and the parable within the context of temple debate surrounding it. See, what this parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us is that it requires action. God requires action. We hear it when Jesus says, go and do likewise, but that's not the point. You can get sermons on that. Joe offered a great big idea on that this morning on the online streaming about how this requires action of loving neighbor. I don't even want to talk about that. I want to talk about this part. If we take this parable seriously, we have to expect that we're going to provoke conflict. Conflict can be understood as the presence 
of distinct and oppositional perspectives. Okay, I'm going to say that. I want to say it with me. The presence of distinct and oppositional perspectives. That's conflict. And there's a lot of conflict in our society. And there's a lot as a society we can and will disagree on both with one another and with larger society, right? Like we should disagree. Jesus didn't pray for uniformity. He prayed for unity, <laughs> right? And, and, and we got to be aware that the reign of sin and death is at work in the world. And where the reign of sin and death at work is at work in the world, conflict will be necessary because the reign of sin and death is provoking forms of violence and injustice and unkindness and all of these different things. So we have to know that where the reign of sin and death is at work, there will be conflict. It's just inevitable. Sherry Mitchell, who was born and raised on an Indian reservation and now serves as an attorney for that, for that reservation, wrote a book called Sacred Instructions, Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit-Based Change. She writes this about conflict. I wanted to share it. She says, conflict is a naturally arising phenomenon in human relationships, and when viewed properly, it can be used as the impetus or the catalyst or provoke growth and transformation when conflict is viewed properly it can open up space for the hidden things of our hearts to be revealed the hidden biases the hidden judgmentalism the hidden prejudices the hidden vices but it can also be a time where the things that are hidden in our hearts can be revealed that are good the hidden virtues the hidden kindnesses see when conflict is viewed through our christian faith it becomes a space where the lordship of Christ breaks through and where every participant is called to live out our commitment to love. That's what conflict creates. It creates an opportunity to press in to love. It can teach us how to hold on to faithful presence, meaning we don't leave too quickly. It can teach us to lean into compassionate listening and wisdom to both offer truth-telling and truth-receiving and above all, pursue this kind of self-emptying love that's modeled by Jesus that the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2.5 said we should pursue. Conflict and disagreement isn't new, it's inevitable. And so are the responses it provokes. And we, as the church, even in conflict, hear me out on this, please. We, we can decide, you and I can decide that as God's people, we know conflict is inevitable. So that as God's people living in a society with conflict, we will hold to the Christ-like ethic of doing no harm to another. That's what we can commit to. Just like Paul said in Romans 13, verse 10, love doesn't do anything wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is what fulfills the law. We can commit to doing no harm. And if we are to commit to doing no harm in the midst of conflict, then we have to know when conflict becomes something more than just the presence of distinct and oppositional differences. We have to know when conflict actually becomes harmful. So here's what I want to offer you. Conflict creates cycles of violence emotionally, physically, spiritually, and otherwise when these oppositional perspectives are mechanized, or another word for that is used, as a weapon against another to inflict harm. Conflict becomes harm 
when the oppositional perspectives are mechanized and used to inflict harm on another person. That's when we start creating a cycle of violence. It's when the ideas and the truths that are centered in the conflict become a weapon of power. You see this play out in societies, in organizations, and even family systems. It's when laws or policies or even values are created or uplifted that marginalize voices or dehumanize other people. It's most obvious, I think, in places where violence is sanctioned by governments to harm its own people. We can see it there pretty easily. But we also see it play out in family systems like marriage relationships and parent-child relationships when the difference of perspective that's causing the conflict is used by the person in authority or the person that holds the most power to shut the other person down or to shut the other person up. You see it when a conflict results in a backlash of verbal abuse, emotional abuse, when a person uses words that they know will hurt another person, or when a person uses the past that someone is already repented of and seeking to repair against them. That's harm. In trauma studies, this is called a cycle of violence. This is harm. And I believe that in a society held captive to the reign of sin and death, we have a question. In our society that is prone to conflict, how can we as the people of God faithfully love while at the same time promote violence toward others as a response to conflict? How can we do that? I just don't think we can. We either choose one or the other. See, I believe the scriptures encourage us to embrace conflict with courage, but to do so in the view of Jesus' life, his cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. We handle conflict as Jesus teaches and models for us, and then we trust God with the consequences because, beloved, we know the deal. When handling conflict like Jesus, it may lead to some sort of public form of crucifixion, and if it does, we will always remember there is resurrection. Some way, somehow, there is resurrection. So you need not be afraid of conflict. Let's disagree when we must. And when we do, and we find ourselves on the wrong end of the disagreement where we're holding the misguided perspective or we're just flat out wrong, then please, beloved, please, as the church, the citizens of the kingdom of God, the holy nation of God living in these United States, let's resist the impulse to justify our words with the American notion of free speech. Okay, Because after all, many of us like free speech a lot less when someone says something we don't like. Real quick, I want to give an example of this. I want, to, I want to take just a minute and talk about this notion of cancel culture. See, we seem to forget that cancel culture has been alive and well for decades. It was just called something else, and we didn't have social media platform in it. Come on now. You remember Elvis Presley? The minute that brother stood up and said, Well, ever since my baby left me, and he shook his hips, the American church canceled him. Did we not? It was canceled. Cancel culture's always existed. As the people of the crucified and risen king of the cosmos, let's not be too quick to play the role of social victim and act like this is some new phenomenon. Let's have enough integrity for what Jesus teaches and models as true, good, and beautiful and do what Jesus did and not get sucked in to the antagonism of thinking somehow we have the authority to cancel anybody. 
Let's be real. Embracing conflict with a healthy view and learning to stay present is just hard. Sometimes truth-telling is hard. Sometimes truth-receiving is hard. And either way, conflict is hard, and many of us would just rather avoid it. So I want to encourage us to remember a few things. First off, remember that God wants to transform more than preserve. And if transformation is going to happen, conflict's going to have to happen even inside of me. God wants to transform me in my own heart. Something's got to happen. Some tension and conflict has to happen even inside of me. Second, God wants unity, not uniformity. And to pursue it, we've got to be led by the Holy Spirit who guides us to obey Jesus' greatest command of love. And when we do, we are blessed even in conflict. And then third, let's just readily admit that many times we'd rather just keep the peace and avoid conflict altogether even to our detriment or the detriment of our neighbors, especially the detriment of the vulnerable and marginalized neighbors among us. I think Jesus knew we'd want to avoid conflict. I think he knew that when we engage conflict, it would be hard. It's probably why in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the peacemakers because they will be God's children. But I'll need you to notice that he didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. Many times we'd rather keep the peace than do the things that actually make for peace. We don't want to be offended. We don't want to offend. We don't want to have our own truth challenged to the degree that what we've always believed needs to be transformed. This is where cancel culture does come in. And this is where playing the social victim of cancel culture comes in. And ultimately, how we view conflict will be determined by whether or not we're committed to being peacekeepers or peacemakers. Now, I offered words on this a year ago, but briefly, I just want to remind us Peacekeeping is easy. It costs us nothing. It only requires a head nod and keeping our mouths shut. And it preserves the status quo. And all it needs is a heart unwilling to change. But peacemaking is costly. It requires deep thought, innovation, creativity within community. It requires an open mouth and steady knees and a heart that is willing to change and forgive. Peacemaking is the act of disrupting injustices and a stubborn refusal to let hate win. Peacekeeping is the act of complicity to these injustices and violence. And it's a stubborn refusal to let love liberate all of us. Bottom line is we can't have both. We're committed to one or the other. It can't coexist. Not if we believe in a God who wants to transform rather than preserve. We can't learn to embrace conflict and enter into the suffering it creates, beloved. We will fall into victims, into cycles of violence and harm. We will walk past our neighbor lying on the side of the road. We'll become indifferent or, in, or we'll become passive. We will end up doing harm. Religious indifference is harm. Religious passivity is harm. Civil conversation in the name of peacemaking, peacekeeping, I'm sorry, is harm. Conversation without action is harm. What aboutisms grounded in defensiveness is harm. Trying to win by decentering historically marginalized voices is harm. But unqualified compassion is good. Unqualified generosity is good. Hard conversations in the name of peacemaking is good. Conversation followed by action is good. <coughs> Compassionate and hospitable listening resulting in honest reflection is good. 
trying to create mutual partnership and collaborations that center historically marginalized voices is good. We can choose to do good and not harm, but it will require a personal commitment from each one of us to hold on to faithful presence that acts in the wisdom of self-emptying love where I learn to decenter my voice sometimes, to be generous with truth-telling, but also truth-receiving, because that's what hard conversations require. It comes with a commitment to extend gracious hospitality and welcome others with compassion. And as a follower of Jesus, I recognize that's God's will for me because I recognize, beloved, we recognize that's what God does for all of us. He decentered his life so that we could be in the center and that he could die for us. So that he could love and live and raise for us. I believe this parable is an invitation. <coughs> it's an invitation to be invited to join God in God's mission to redeem and restore all things, which includes doing good. But we're invited to remember that we're not the ones who get to determine or decide who gets to participate in the mission. We decide today that we will not choose to walk down the road of religious indifference or passivity. We will show compassion, extend hospitality, work for justice, because that's what God has done for us. Let's trust God enough with our lives. Let's join God in what he's doing. Let's see what Jesus offers us, teaches us, and models for us in this story. And in the words of Jesus, let's go and do likewise. Church, let's decide that we will do good, not harm. So every week we gather and we come to the table. That's what we remember God has done for us. The Bible says that while we were enemies with God, <clears throat> Christ died for the ungodly. Y'all remember that? God chose not to do harm. God chose to do good. The Bible says that while we were foreigners and strangers to God, God welcomed us as his children. God extended hospitality to us. The Bible says that the reign of sin and death was having its way in the world, and the world was condemned, and all that was wrong in the world was going to win until God entered in. And made right what the reign of sin and death had made wrong. God worked for justice on our behalf. 